Amy Hall. I'm here with Greg Kogel. Thanks for listening to Stand to Reasons hashtag STR Ask Podcast. All right. Let us start, Greg, okay. with the first question. Rock this, and roll. One, <laughs> this one comes from Charles Claxton. Why Charles did... Thaxton? Claxton. Oh, because there's a Charles Thaxton who is the ID guy. Okay. <laughs> Why did Paul circumcise Timothy in Acts in Acts 16 after the judgment of the Council of Jerusalem? Well, it, if you look at the passage, uh, I'll, uh, I'll um, actually let me. The Council of Jerusalem judgment was just before that in chapter 15, and basically the details were that one did not have to a Gentile did not have to keep the Jewish law in order to be a Christian under Messiah Christ, Messiah Jesus, rather, that would be redundant, Messiah Christ. And so there's a lot of detail in there. But then you have Paul immediately circumcising a Greek. Now, we know from Paul's writing, especially in Galatians chapter 5, that um, if um, if you receive circumcision, then Christ is of no use to you. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, okay? So, in in Acts 15 and in the Galatians 5, the circumcision issue is an issue that's theological and is related to justification. Are we justified by law, characterized by circumcision, or are we justified by grace, all right. The answer in Acts 15 and in Galatians 5 is grace. And so aggressively in Galatians 5 does Paul put it that he says that if you receive circumcision for that reason, being justified by law, you are severed from Christ. It's one or the other. Circumcision on all the rest of the law on the one side, or the Messiah— and the grace of God on the other. If it's by law, it's not by grace. If it's by grace, it's not by law. Okay? If you are justified by law, then Christ died needlessly. These are different statements that Paul makes in different places. I think that first reference was Romans, and the second one is uh, Galatians also. So, um, so that's the theological dividing line, all right? But when we read in chapter 16 there of Acts, it says, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra, and he meets Timothy— son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. So he's got a Jewish mother, but a Greek father. At that time, one's one's Jewishness, I guess, was determined more by the father because you have a patriarchy. Uh, Later, it became custom to consider Jewishness by the mother uh, for a number of reasons. But nevertheless, it's still—he's right in the middle. He could go— one way or the other. But since people knew that his father was Greek, then Paul had him circumcised. By the way, this is a a, a young man who's well spoken of by the brethren who are in those areas, verse 2. Paul wanted him to go with him. So where's Paul going now? He wants to bring Timothy as a new disciple with him to travel around. All right? Timothy's half Jewish, half Greek. Um, And took him, verse 3, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was Greek. So what you have in this case is 
a cultural accommodation, not a theological move. Paul understood perfectly, and so did Timothy as a disciple of Paul, that justification had nothing to do with circumcision. But part of what Paul did was to go to the groups of Jews, the diaspora Jews, those who are dispersed out around the Mediterranean region, in this case Galatia, and then later on in Greece, etc., and meet with the Jews who are dispersed in their meeting places. Now, you can't have a meeting place where you bring a Gentile in, okay? That's not accepted by those local Jews. And so what Jesus, what, what Paul did is he took a half-Jew and had him circumcised, which would make him acceptable to the Jews coming in. So that issue was not a barrier for them to consider the gospel, okay? Um, and there's complete legitimacy to making accommodations culturally to remove unnecessary barriers to people to becoming Christian. And, uh, and there's—here's a great example of that. There's lots of application of this, you know. Some Christians would never enter a bar, all right, because they think it's wrong. Well, it's not against Scripture to enter a bar, because there's alcohol in there, because if that were the case, then Jesus couldn't have gone into the upper room, for goodness sake, on Passover, on Good Friday, because there was alcohol they drank. So, um, well, what about drinking? Well, Scripture isn't against that either. It's against the improper use of alcohol, and there's different categories of that, whether it's excessive drinking or also certain circumstances where you want to be sensitive to others. However, when those issues are not issues, having a beer with a non-Christian person sometimes removes a barrier to them to be thinking about Christianity. Somebody once said to me, well, you're going to ruin your witness if you drink in that kind of circumstance. I said, what witness am I ruining? Well, Christians don't drink. Well, that's not a witness I want to support, because that has nothing to do with Christianity. That doesn't ruin any meaningful witness. Now, I'm not here to kind of stir up people about the issue of drinking, but I do think it is a good parallel here, because the whole question of circumcision was very volatile. And in chapter 15, they say, hey, don't require this. Well, Paul didn't do it in chapter 16 as a requirement of the law. He did it as an accommodation to a group of people for whom this thing mattered to increase accessibility to the gospel. And I think that is kind of—there's an analog in certain circumstances to um, to drinking, sitting out having a beer with it—or a glass of wine or whatever with a non-Christian. And uh, I, uh, that—, that m- makes the environment more comfortable for them to hear what you have to say. And uh, so anyway, that's, uh, I think that's what's going on there. And maybe you have something to add to that, Amy. I don't know. Um, but th- that's what's going on. This is not theological in Acts 16. It is cultural. And Paul's habit was to go to the Jews in those regions first before he went to the Gentiles. If he's dragging this half-Gentile with him who's uncircumcised, that's going to impede his progress with the Jews. So if he brings this person with who's half-Jewish and circumcised, that removes the barriers. So if we get a little context for this, I'm thinking about when Peter was sent by the Holy Spirit to see Cornelius, 
Acts and he 10. had the vision right. about uh, not calling things unclean that God has called clean. And mm-hmm. so he goes with the Gentiles to go speak to Cornelius. Mm-hmm. What he says to them is this. Let's see here. Um And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. So what we see there is that among the Jews, they would not be willing to meet with Timothy if he were not circumcised. Mm -hmm. So if he's doing it so that – because remember, the Jews are not the believers that he's talking about here. It's not that there are believing Jews that won't accept him if he's not circumcised. He's talking about people who are not believers in Christ and would not associate with him if he were not um, circumcised. Yeah, regarding that first group that you just mentioned, Paul has made it very clear there's neither Jew nor Gentile in the church. Mm Mm-hmm. So if, if he's going there to reach them, obviously something has to be done with this, and to put this in kind of a more theological context, Paul describes his thinking on this in 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under mm-hmm. the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on. So in other words, he is living in a way that will allow him to interact with the, the other people who are under the law and, and reach them. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't, he doesn't think he's under the law, and he didn't think Timothy was under the law. You know, uh, that's a, a thank, thank you for that uh, reference of 1 Corinthians, or, or maybe 2nd, but the, the Corinthian reference, because um, it, it highlights a very important point, how it is appropriate to adapt and adjust to the culture and adopt cultural forms that are not immoral. In other words, forms that are morally neutral. And I remember when I came back from Thailand, there was a big shift. This is 40 years ago now, but there had been a big shift while I was away in the way young people dressed. And and people were saying, look at those people, young people coming to the church. They look just like the world. And I, my question was, have, now having done cross-cultural ministry, I said, what do you look like? You look just like, the, you know, so you're Nordstrom's, right? You look just like the world, too. You look just like the people in your cultural niche. And there's nothing you know, the moral or immoral about the way you dress, generally speaking, you know, but this was the complaint. And so um, I think the idea of accommodation in morally neutral things is really important. And that's what we find here with circumcision in Timothy. It's an accommodation to the culture where Paul is becoming someone like the Jews he's trying to reach, though not under the law, he is simply practicing the things that are appropriate to the law for those people who still believe in the law, so as not to create offense and to create an atmosphere where it's easier for them to listen to what he has to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, one other thought, Amy, now I'm not sure what your thinking is on this, but when when Peter says, you know, in Acts 10, it's unlawful for us to come into the house of a Gentile, I don't know, and I never looked this up, but I don't know if the Torah disqualifies that or this is Talmudic. In other words, this is the traditions of the elders. Remember, the, tra- the elders had lots and lots of traditions that they imposed upon the people as 
legally required that were not required in 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 God's law and this is these are traditions of men that got in the way with the spirit of the law so since the old testament has many references to God's love for the gentiles and the abrahamic covenant projects as its ultimate goal its final telos so to speak um the the saving of the 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 goyim the gentiles the nations um i'm just wondering if this reference to being unlawful is in the Torah, at least, the circumstances that he was facing there, or whether this is part of the Talmudic tradition. Do you know? I don't think it's in the Torah. I mean, the, the only things I can think of that are in the Torah are things like you cannot marry outside of Israel. Um, and also the temple had sections for Jews only, and also the, there's the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles could come and worship God-fearers. I, I can imagine that probably it the the rules built up over time about since there are certain things you can eat and not eat, then uh-huh. therefore you stopped eating with Gentiles because you didn't know if you were going to have the right kind of food and um, oh, sure. right right. So it probably grew from there just a protection because they didn't want to break the law. So how much easier is it for them if they just say I can't associate with you? Then mm-hmm. you can't uh, uh, in you know, influence me. Now, considering how much trouble they got into before the exile because they were accommodating too many of the cultural things, I, right. you can see how this happened. Right. But An overreaction now, yeah. the Pharisaic approach. Right. Right. But the, but the Old Testament is very clear that you are supposed to treat the foreign person, like the native-born person, and you're supposed to—you're not supposed to treat them differently. I, I do know that is in the Torah. So right, right. I think these things probably built up over time as a protection, be- mm-hmm. as a reaction to the exile. Well, there is a certain sense, and I talk about this at length in the series that we have at STR that people can get online that's uh, called the Bible Fast Forward, in that the, the law did have a, a, a purpose of creating a wall around the Jews so they were not eclectic spiritually with these other cultures. And the way they, they, uh, that God arranged to have that done is to cr- put all of these details in the laws that made them culturally distinct as well. Now, they violated this all the time. And then it was the Bal- Babylonian Talmud after the Babylonian captivity that, you know, you, in the 5th or 6th century BC, that, that this is when they started really getting particular about it. Now we're, now we're going to build a wall around the wall, so to speak, and make sure that we don't mess with we don't break any of these rules. So um, uh, th- th- there is a divine purpose of protection for the, the Torah, for the laws there, mm-hmm. initially, that then got added by, added to with a lot of man's traditions because of the the regular violation of God's law prior to the Babylonian captivity. And But now in the New Testament, this is very important in Ephesians 2, that even God's dividing wall— the law, has been broken down so that they can make the two, the Jews and the Gentiles, into one new man. This is in um, Ephesians Ephesians. chapter 2, and it's really an important section. And it identifies the foundation is the prophet's um, and the apostles, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, and then we are being built up, Jew and Gentile, into this new edifice. That's a really magnificent 
characterization of the church there as contrasted to the old system. But um, a lot of people don't understand what's going on there. The law was meant to keep the Jews culturally separate, so there's not any syncretism religiously. But then that got way out of hand. God's purpose anyway was to remove that dividing wall so that in the body of Christ, with regards to those kinds of mosaic distinctions, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. It's fabulous. This whole situation just goes to show how sin can ruin everything. You can go the wrong direction. You can, tr- you know, if they're trying to be better followers of God and then they add all these things That's to be right. even better, now their sin's ruining it in the other direction. Yeah. It's well, just, the- we, we just cannot be righteous by law. Yeah. We just cannot do it. Well, this is exactly what Christian churches that are deemed fundamentalist uh, in, the, in the pejorative sense have done. And these are blue laws where, you know, in communities, certain laws are passed to comport with Christian ethic. Like, okay, no businesses can be open on Sunday because you're not supposed to work on Sunday, so we're passing these laws. Or we don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with those that do, you know, kind of thing. Well, these are all additional things that human beings have put in. There may be some wisdom to them as a personal guideline, but they make them legalistic and that you have to keep these additional laws to really be considered righteous with our group. And that's where Christian legalism gets in, and it's a killer. It's an absolute killer and uh, creates all kinds of uh, opportunities for judging other Christians in illicit ways on things that are not moral, but they have been made to be moral by the local group. That's legalism. All right, let's squeeze another question in here. This one comes from Sapitati. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm a graphic designer. Fellow Christians often expect me to work for free as it's, quote, for the Lord. Is this wrong or even a sin? Uh, Yes and yes. I think it's wrong and it's a sin. All right. (laughs) The scripture says the worker is worthy of his wages. The scripture says that in Corinthians that that when you give, Paul says, he's asking for money to help a particular need. When you give, you are not to give under compulsion, but cheerfully as the Lord has prospered you. So our gifts are not obligatory in a legalistic sense in the New Testament. Tithing was a feature and a function of the Mosaic law. Okay, anybody who goes to Malachi and says, if you're not giving 10% to this church, you're stealing from the Lord, does not understand the relationship of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The Jews under the Mosaic Law were obliged to tithe. Actually, it was more than 10% when you look at all the different demands that were made on them. John MacArthur said it was closer to 30%. Um, But um, in the New Testament, there is no reference to tithing, save one, where Jesus in Matthew 25 um, says to the Jews they ought to tithe, you know, and but that was under the Old Covenant a dispensation, and we know that because in the beginning of that very chapter, he says that you should do everything that Moses tells you to do. So tithing was part of what Moses said for Jews <laughs> under the Old Dispensation. We're in a new dispensation. We are not under the law. Gentiles never were under that law anyway. And so, um, so, so consequently, um, this is, I'm coming the long way around to this question, when we are not obliged to give in any circumstance, we are obliged to be generous in lots of circumstances and giving into your church 
um, giving where you're fed. This is a principle out of Galatians 6, um, that this is, this is appropriate, and it is also appropriate um, when there are needs to give, and that's what Paul says in the Corinthians passage, but it's to be done with, the, with an open heart. If a person now who's a graphic designer um, wants to uh, do some work pro bono, because he's working for a Christian ministry, or give them a discount. Well, he's certainly able to do that. He's allowed to do that, but it's a free will offering. It can't be demanded of him. You know, well, this is for the Lord. And he could say, I already give to the Lord. Um, It's also for me and my family. And the Scripture also says, this is at least one reference is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that we are to work individually to provide for ourselves and also to be able to help others. In other words, we make enough for ourselves and also a little extra for those who have genuine need. Another text says, if you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. You've denied the faith. Okay, well, then how could someone who is doing this kind of work, especially for a lot of Christian organizations, not get paid and still provide for his family? I mean, this is all upside down. The Christian decides what he wants to give for the Lord. That is between him and the Lord. It isn't the person who is personally benefiting from the application of this rule. Oh, my work is for the Lord. Okay. Uh, Or you can use it as if, okay, therefore, you got to give me money to spend in for the Lord. All right. And um, Frank... (laughs) Turek has a line. I'm chuckling because I, well, I, I tricked him on it once. So I won't get into that. But Turek has a line. He says, "All the, his book sales, all the profits go to starving children. His own. <laughs> <laughs> to support starving children, something to that effect. I actually preceded him in an event before he got there into town. He was on Saturday. I was on Friday. And I told that joke. And then I told everybody, Frank's going to tell this joke uh, tomorrow when he's here. So I don't want anybody to even crack a smile. Don't say anything. (laughs) And he did give the joke, and nobody smiled. And he went, wait a minute. That's a good line. Did Kokel do this to me? You know, it was really funny. (laughs) Actually, I'm going to have Frank on the show later this this morning. So uh, this afternoon, I should say. In any event, so this is an illicit requirement. It's also, I think, an illicit request. Because you're just you're you're just asking for a donation, and you're suggesting that it's appropriate to expect that to be donated because this is for the Lord. I think that the the designer here can simply say, "My work is for the Lord too; it's for my family," and that is a moral obligation I have as a Christian. My work is for the Lord. Uh, so here's the other side of that, and this wasn't part of this. Uh, request, or part of the question, but very quickly, because I know we're almost out of time. Um, some some Christians expect are expected to give a discount of their work to other Christians who, who take their work. Now, this is actually, uh, it, so when you're a carpenter, you're a contractor, okay, do I, I'm a Christian, can you give me a 20% discount because I'm Christian? And the contractor can say, no, actually, I'm charging you 20% more. What? Why? Because I'm a Christian. Do you get that? Why should the client be the one who makes the extra money because he's a Christian instead of the vendor who makes the extra money because he's a Christian? 
What what entitles them? Now, if they want to give it, I'll give you a break. And people have given, lots of people have given me breaks on different kinds of things. And I'm always happy. I never expect it. I never demand it. I never ask for it. Never. Because that would be inappropriate for me. I might say, hey, you're a believer. I'm going to pay you a bonus, 20% bonus. Again, why does the why does the discount always flow in one direction in these kinds of situations? Anyway, so that maybe that will help too. That never occurred to me before, Greg. That's a really good question. I I didn't plan this both questions to have to do with 1 Corinthians 9, but this also is addressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Mm-hmm. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Right. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing mm-hmm. the crops. Excellent, Amy. Yeah. And by the way, that that's—now, now, I think he's talking about ministry, people getting paid for ministry, but the, the, he is taking a general principle and applying it to ministry. But the general principle applies to everyone who works. Mm-hmm. Anybody who works, the worker is worthy of his wages— that's the general principle. And by application, the minister is worthy of his rate wages. That's the way Paul mm-hmm. is applying it there. But the general principle is still intact. So I just want to tell one more funny story about this. But a friend of mine used to have a, a, a term that he used for people who kind of assumed that you would do free work for them. And he it came from people saying, bro, can you just do this? Bro, can you do that? So he called it broing below the belt. <laughs> <laughs> broing below the belt. Below the belt. I got broed below the belt. So um, – and then one last quick thing because if you're looking this for a solution – This is the third last thing, you know. I know. Okay. I know. Um, there's a guy named John Acuff who – he he has talked about this a lot. He he writes about productivity and uh, work stuff. And what he said is a great line to say if somebody asks you to do something, just to make it clear that that there's some expectation of of being paid. The best thing to say is is just what's your budget. So they ask you to do something, and then you say what's your budget. Then you're making it clear that you can work with them, but you're expecting this to be part of your um, your regular work that you yeah. need to be that you're compensated <laughs> you to be paid for. for. That's excellent. So that might be helpful if you find yourself in that situation, because I can imagine graphic designers probably do face this quite a bit. All right. We're out of time, Greg. We're over time. That's okay. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> we don't mind. Well, thank you for your questions. Please keep sending those on Twitter with the hashtag STRask. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kogel for Stand to Reason.